listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is a writer, director and producer who has cast and worked with some talented actors in his films, including Diane Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Kevin Costa and Diane Lane. Tom Bazooka, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Tom, when I look at your films, it's clear that you like to mix it up with different genres. Your latest film, Let Him Go, is a a change-up genre for you, but one that you look totally at home with, and we'll talk about that film very shortly. I see that you've directed your own screenplays, with the exception of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which is a bit of a tongue twister. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, a really well-crafted film directed by Mike Newell. But there were, I think, three writers on this project. And also I noted that your film Monte Carlo had four writers on it. So what's your preferred option? Do you like writing in a team or on your own? In the end, I believe I like writing on my own, although I love the collaborative process of being in the editing room with my editor. And I've had fun with friends writing things together, which was the case on Guernsey. Although there are three credited writers, we did not work as a team, but sort of followed behind the other two and and then worked with Mike Newell, the director, to get the film to production. Your first film was over 20 years ago. Tell me how you broke into the film industry and got your career going. Um, I wrote a script. Weirdly, as simple a story as that. I was working for Ralph Lauren for about a decade in New York. Very happy um, doing interior display work, store design. But in it's interesting. Movies were always a, a shorthand as a point of reference. And I love movies. And just sort of this story occurred to me, this fantasy I had about what if I just chucked it all in and moved to Montana and taught art. And Big Eden was sort of the fantasy born out of that. And wrote the script, uh, spent much more time not writing and then writing it, and finally got it together and then cobbled the money together with a friend, Jennifer Chaikin was the producer, and we raised, we were able to raise the funds and then just went and shot it. And that was strangely the first, the first day on set was my first time ever setting foot on, on a set. (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah. It's a little, but it's, you know, it's one of those things I used to joke that in Thelma and Louise, they, you know, they blow up that tanker truck and they're driving away, and Louise says to Thelma, where'd you learn to shoot like that? And she says, oh, off of the TV. (laughs) There's a little bit of, um, there's so many films about making films that I had an idea of how it worked. Um, And I'd also, I, I had poured over the Truffaut Hitchcock book, was probably my most prized possession when I was in high school. And I, I definitely studied that. But it was, yeah, it was definitely, Big Eden was a, a, a true leap of faith on the part of the actors to work with me because I had never done that before. But you say that you 
had some sort of understanding by watching film, reading about it, but there's always a massive difference between reading <laughs> and then doing. When it comes to, it's hard, unless you've actually directed a film, it is incredibly hard to try and describe what that is like to somebody that has not directed a film. So first, <laughs> I'm just yeah. trying to imagine the first day because we are all nervous, doesn't matter how many films that we've done, when you are standing there first day and the cast and crew are looking towards you to to lead them and to be in that first time ever, like you, you didn't go to film school. Actually, it's something that you've got in common with Tom Ford because he comes right. from yeah. a, a similar background. That, that's right. As I said, I worked for Ralph Lauren for a decade and I sort of leading a team making decisions, that wasn't entirely new. But it, it, the other thing I want to, is that's important to know is sort of the a film crew, just the dynamic on set. Everybody has a job. Everybody on every film, <laughs> still on every film I work on, everybody else has more experience than I do. It's a machine. And the machine, in a strange way, assembles itself. You know, you choose your department heads, whether it's your DP, your sound person, the production designer, and they all lead their group. You're just sort of at the top, but that machine strangely propels you forward. If you're prepared, which, you know, I have the advantage having written the scripts, I've spent more time with the characters. I have, you know, sort of struggled to find the words to describe what I see in my head. And now you're sort of driving that forward. It's a very smart idea to surround yourself with experienced crew members. And it sounds like you've done that. Uh, my first short film, I did exactly mm. that. I actually attracted in a international cinematographer, David Gribble, who mm. is known for a bunch of films, including The World's Fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And David was basically my film school and mm -hmm. similar sort of thing, except this was a short film. That was where I learned everything was from a A-list cinematographer. All right, well, yeah. let's have a look at your, um, your latest film, Let Him Go. It stars Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. You will be pleased to know that I watched this film in a 300-seater cinema. Were there other people there? <laughs> there would have been about 50 people. Uh, so there, oh, there, was a, there was a good number of people in there. But I guess from a filmmaking point of view, it doesn't matter where people are. If they can mm -hmm. get into the cinema, they are going to enjoy a film like Let Him Go so much more because it's made for the big screen, this movie. It was. Um, it's really the, the heartbreak about releasing it during a pandemic uh, domestically in North America is we only had a single test screening well over a year ago. So it was about last October in California. And it was wonderful to see it with in a packed, see, you know, there were 300 people. And it, it's there is a bit of a mob reaction to some of, some of the hijinks in the movie and that, that, that's very satisfying. Let's just rewind a little bit back to that test screening. Tell me yeah. some of the things that you actually found as a result because I know particularly our indie filmmakers will be very interested mm -hmm. to know just the process of the film. As you say, 300 people. It gives you a very good feel across the film. Obviously, it's more of a an indication as to the general feel of the piece with an audience. It's not necessarily literally 
things that you are going to pull out, perhaps. So tell us that process. How that how did that work? How did what did yeah, you find it, out? I love the process um, and really embrace it. What happens is they recruit an audience based on a brief description of the film. So people inside are hopefully interested in being there and you, you screen the film. It's unfinished. So a lot of special effects, like we have some fire effects that weren't complete, but the audience is made aware of all that. And it's also your, not your final soundtrack. It's a temp score. They watch the movie, they fill out cards at the end, every audience member sort of that rates the movie and then sort of asks questions about pace, who they liked the most, questions like that. And then there's a facilitator that skims like 20 to 25 audience members at random for a focus group at the end. And you and the producers and the studio executives sit nearby as that moderator walks that group, that focus group through their reactions to the film. What happens is you get into an audience and immediately, regardless of their reaction, you suddenly see the film it's, it's a strangely magical thing. You see the film completely fresh, imagining it through their eyes. And so you all of a sudden see everything that's wrong with it that you want to change. I definitely find it interesting. I I'm always want to know where I am trying an audience's patience. It's super helpful. On this one particularly, there's some jumping around in the first 10 minutes I won't give away too much, but the um, Diane Lane and Kevin Costner's son dies in a horse accident and Kevin discovers the son's body. It cuts to black and then Kevin and Diane are dressing. It's a very somber mood in the bedroom and they are dressing formally and she's tying his tie. And the assumption, of course, is that they're going to their son's funeral and then it cuts to a courthouse where their former daughter-in-law is remarrying. And there was some concern, not with me, going into the screening that this would be confusing. And I knew that I had great faith that an audience would be able to follow the misdirect. And the audience was great because they one of the key questions they always, you always ask is if there were any areas of confusion. And there were none. But that sort of misdirect was called out by the audience as something that they took pleasure from. Like, oh, I thought this. And then two seconds later, I got it. But it, I felt vindicated. So you had producers that were, or, or perhaps people from the studio saying, yeah. look, this, this could be a bit of a problem. And then it was just flushed out with the test screening. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah. perfect. Actually, I just want to come back to that. That particular scene you're talking of, I got the sense that you cut those up into little flashy pieces further down the film. Maybe the original idea was to play that out where the body is over the horse as we see mm. that wide shot of Kevin Costner's character moving away. Was mm. that the way that you planned that, to actually cut those little pieces, those little flashy pieces? Did you do that after you shot it and thought, okay, that in the edit process, that, mm -hmm. that looks better to cut that up? Is that mm. how you did it? I, I'm so glad you're asking the question because it, uh, the answer is no. All those flashbacks are exactly where they were in the script. And there was definitely a, a moment where 
I was encouraged to place the flashback you're talking about where Kevin puts his son's body on the horse and leads it home in the front in that first 10 minutes. But I really wanted to save it for later. If you sort of look back at the movie, what's interesting to me is that all of the flashbacks are actually Kevin's character's memory. They're not sort of simply narrative flashbacks. They are what he's haunted by. You know, he's, his character is so taciturn and does not speak very much. And they, for me, they were a window into that guy's head. This film, Let Him Go, as mentioned, stars Diane Lane and Kevin Costner. And the casting of these two actors and the chemistry on screen is one of the film's biggest strengths, without a doubt. So who who did you cast first and how did that casting evolve? Sure. Diane was in first. We were meeting with different people like Focus Features was who we ended up going with. But while we were in that process, Diane, I got a call. Somebody had given Diane the script. She was very interested. And we, she and I had a lunch in New York. And she was, you know, I've been a fan of hers since A Little Romance. It's strange. I don't know that she would not have been first on my list simply because she's so beautiful and young. And I had no thought that she would ever be interested in playing a grandmother. And she, re- and she really was and had wanted to lean into looking that age, you know, 54-year-old woman in Montana in 1961 would look. So she wanted gray hair, all, all of that. And anyway, but I loved her, loved her take on the character and her understanding of the whole, the journey. And it was on the strength of Diane it's funny, when I was on my way to meet her for lunch, I did what we all do, which is looked up on YouTube, sort of clips of her, recent clips, and came across it's a very short junket piece with her and Kevin promoting Man of Steel. And there was just something between them that you just was sort of crackly. So I, I talked to her about Kevin when we actually met for lunch, and she thought it was a great idea they wanted to work together again. And so we we got the script to Kevin and then I went and met with him. The world of independent film, this is, I mean, I've only directed four films in 20 years, did not for lack of trying on other things. This came together very, very quickly. How did Focus Features get involved then? Was it after you had Costner and Lane attached? You're talking to a number of places that are interested. You know, it's it's sweeter if you can attach talent and we attached diane they were very excited you know there were some actors they were interested in but kevin was absolutely always our first choice so i i you know i feel like i've i won the lottery twice on this one that can't hurt kevin costner and and diane lane as as your two leads Uh, i mean that's that's kind of like a rubber stamp from focus features and they put up was it 15 million the budget i read somewhere yes so 15 million with costner and lane it's a tricky Mm -hmm. budget with the stars that you've attracted into the film and what i mean by that is it's a very tight rope to walk because if you had other lesser known stars that tight rope has a lot of slack in it meaning that there is this perceived 
expectation right across the production and, of course, the final product out to the audience. But Mm. with your producers, you have clearly been able to navigate all of that around that $15 million budget. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money, but it's a small budget for what we were trying to do. And, you know, it, it, there are compromises you make on this. The big compromise was time. It was a very fast shoot. We had very little prep time, partly because we needed to accommodate Kevin's schedule. We needed to release him to go back to Yellowstone, the television show he's on. It was manageable. It was manageable. How, how many days, uh, Tom, did it take we, to shoot the film? I, I think in the end... 31. Mm, That's not too bad, 31. Although, you know, and we'll talk about the vastness of this film in just a moment. I like the less is more approach when it comes to dialogue with this film. When you have actors who know what to do with the material, the film could have easily have failed because of this with the wrong casting. But you have two actors seemingly at ease with sparse dialogue and the body gestures and looks that they give each other is a bit of a masterclass for actors to watch. So I can really recommend the film just for that, for actors to look at the way these two actors are inhibiting their characters. But you obviously knew what you wanted. So tell us a little bit how that all worked out in discussions, refinements, adjustments on the day. Also, I guess uh, there must have been some sort of workshopping prior to the film? There was. I loved the challenge of finding exactly the right words for people who don't speak much. There's a scene where they are visiting sort of the arch enemy, Blanche Weeboy's house. They're seeking to bring their grandson home, save their grandson from these dangerous people and bring him home. And Diane has succeeded in getting the child into her arms in this kitchen and starts to back toward the door with the child. And Kevin turns and looks at her, and he almost does a double take, seeing what's going on with her. And they proceed to have a conversation, negotiation, about her putting the child down without ever speaking. And he is glancing at her, and just it's just with their eyes. And that was actually, they're spectacular. Kevin, I mean, both of them are unbelievable. Uh, But that was actually in the script. A lot of the sort of unspoken conversations were outlined in the script. But then I also did get some rehearsal time with Kevin and Diane. And I was really surprised. Kevin is such a mammoth movie star. And a lot of actors that work primarily in film do not love the rehearsal process. Um, Diane Keaton is, is a good example. She, she indulged me and did it, but she's a very spontaneous performer. She likes to find it on set. Anyway, Kevin really loves rehearsal and Diane, it, like her bones are in theater. So she loves rehearsal. The challenge with independent films like this, when you don't have a lot of time to carve out time for rehearsal. Um, and I had a week with the two of them And part of that was I wanted to sort of work on the intimacy between them. I I taped out the measurements of the set that would be their kitchen just because I I wanted them to feel like they understood that space in their sleep, um, that they would be as familiar with the kitchen as they were with each other. Also, part of that week of rehearsal was having affording them to have time with 
the two twins that played their grandson and the kid feeling as comfortable with them being held by them, especially Diane and Kaylee anyway, but it was, it was great fun. What were some of the key notes that you're working? I mean, two very established actors. So what are some of the notes that you're giving them around this lack of dialogue and the way that they approach it? It's subtle stuff um, about who, like if in their relationship, who is, in control of who's driving which part of which scenes. Much more about blocking and figuring out the physical space that they were in. We didn't want to do the same scene over and over. And and so there's a bit of a do-si-do and the the power shifts back and forth between them. We, We talked a lot about that. I'm interested to hear about the the way that you incorporated the blocking with the workshopping, the rehearsal. So mm-hmm. you're in a different space to the actual space you'll be shooting on. You mentioned that you measured yeah. it out and you worked out some of your blocking. And I'm curious as to how much of that actually translated on the day of getting into the space. Sure. Things that were really a love that we figured out was there's a scene before they hit the road where Diana's waiting for Kevin. She's seated at their kitchen table and he comes in a door behind her. And so she has her back to him and he crosses the the length of the room to the kitchen sink. And now he's in front of her all without a word. And But there's they're onto each other. There's something going on in the scene. And then he is seated at the table in the chair across from where she had been seating, sitting, but she's now behind his back at the kitchen sink. And so it was sort of when they're communicating, when they're not looking at each other, when they're obscured from each other, and when they confront each other. And so that was a, they, over the course of that scene, trade places. So that was something we figured out. And then another good example is there's a scene where they are talking about the task of going to rescue this grandson and kevin is saying that they're not young and she's saying they're not old and it takes place on a um overlooking this river in the middle of nowhere and it's on a sort of hill at the top of a hill and kevin diane is seated and kevin is standing over her we ended up it, anyway it was sort of who stands up at what point who is higher like when she stands up he is sort of lower than her and then she retreats and she goes down a hill anyway it, it's that sort of stuff just who is who has the upper hand on the screen space wise so it sounds like you really did get something out of the the blocking to work all of those little intricate because that's what they are they're intricate little pieces of movement between the two of them and some of it is very subtle and without the dialogue you can do that Yes. What you discover is like, oh, Diane, like we want Diane seated because we want her lower than Kevin to begin with and that she's looking out over this vista. And so that means, okay, we need a rock because there's no rock on the top of this hill. And so Trevor Smith, our production designer, built a rock. Okay. Yeah, and the the film really surprised me. The rhythm of the piece I really enjoyed, and I didn't for a minute see how menacing the film was going to develop, which was the film Shifting Gears. Then enter Leslie Manville, who I did not recognize another piece of clarity casting. But how did you arrive with Leslie? I have this gift on this film of working with A.V. Kaufman, who is a casting director with whom I have wanted to work since I began in the business because she's the best. 
And she did Wonder Boys, she did The Ice Storm, she did Pleasantville, she did all these fantastic movies, starting in the sort of the golden age of independent film back in the 90s. And Leslie was always her first choice. I love Leslie because of all the work she's done in the Mike Lee movies and then Phantom Thread. And Leslie is spectacular. And and she is, you know, in stark contrast to Kevin and Diane's characters, she almost never stops talking. Uh, she she really does steal the scenes. Leslie Manville's performance actually reminded me of Jackie Weaver in mm-hmm. the Australian film Animal Kingdom. Have you seen that film? I have. I have. Like in that film, I couldn't take my eyes off Jackie Weaver's character and her performance. And the same thing here with Manville, who just completely dominated the scenes that she was in. <laughs> she She had a great time. Now, the novel is by Larry Watson. Uh, You read it. Obviously, you had a strong idea of how to adapt it. You've done that before. What stood out for you in the novel the most for wanting to make this film? It was, you know, I'm always interested in the family dynamics. I loved this love story, which, I, you know, it's a love story wrapped up in thriller packaging. Uh, I loved a relationship between this grieving long married couple and their love for each other. And there was something about the, just the fight for family that felt and the, the terrible predicament they're in where are you going to do the wrong things for all the right reasons? And just what would you, what would you do that felt sort of Shakespearean um, in its complications? And you clearly have an appetite for vastness of space, which has to be appreciated in the cinema, as we said earlier. Mm. Some really gorgeous cinematography in this film. And Canada doubled for Montana. Now, I've never been to Montana, but it must have been pretty convincing as I haven't read anywhere where people have disputed that fact. Yeah, no, that's true. I have been to Montana. My first film was set and and shot in Montana, um, in Glacier National Park. This was for tax reasons. We had really no choice but to go to Canada. And we were in all over the Alberta province, uh, based in Calgary. But it's essentially rides about two hours north of Montana and then heading east toward North Dakota. So it's really, it is essentially the same terrain. Your cinematographer has done a really great job. And for those that are wanting to know what the film was shot on, it was shot on, I believe, uh, an Ari Alexa Mini and Panavision E and T series lenses were used. Aspect ratio was 239 for those of us that want to know that information. Now, the 1960s is a great period for the mystery. The film doesn't clearly work in a modern era because the way that they're looking for where the grandson has gone, there's no Google or anything like that. The novel was set in the 1950s, though, so you moved it into the 1960s for the film. That's right. I, the, the novel takes place in 51. And it's interesting, I talked to Larry a little bit about it, just when you do the math, the 1951 in America is still feels a little post-war. And so it raised questions for me about Kevin's characters, 
like would he have served would his son would have been old enough like there would have been a reason that he didn't serve in the army if anyway and so i just moved it to 63 because i loved that year 1963 feels like the crossroads in american culture in the 20th century that kennedy is president but it's it's the fall from grace is you know within distance the music is better in that period for me oh something else i wanted to go back though the, to the panavision lenses Guy Godfrey is the cinematographer. He's spectacular. He's from Canada. He did a wonderful movie called Maudie with Sally Hawkins a couple of years ago. I can't wait to work with him again. There's a lot of car driving, and I wanted it to feel like the movies I grew up with where, you know, it's tray mounts or you're mounted on the car or you're free driving, but it's not green screen you're not in a studio. I wanted so much of this to feel authentic and handmade, as modest as George and Margaret are. And when I was ta- would talk to Guy and talk to Trevor Smith, our production designer said, "Let's make it as if we're making it in 1978." Like I just that's the level of technology. I I don't want anything more than that. And Guy got his hands on these old Panavision lenses. Um, these anamorphic lenses that have this fantastic decay and slight vignetting on the edges that we just, we loved. I'm very pleased with the way it looks. That was such a great choice in terms of lenses because it does come across in the film. The Wee Body family, eh, this is an ensemble that works incredibly (laughs) well. Uh, when I have a look at the hotel scene and the escalation that follows, I presume that that was in the novel, the way that it played out in the in the film, or did you slightly ramp that up? Events are the same. The players are slightly different. In the novel, the character of their new son-in-law, Donnie Weeboy, is not present. And I thought it was key that he be part of that scene, but also what his mother makes him do. That felt like a key story point. And for me, what followed with the police officer and the way that that scene played out after the event was mm-hmm. doubling down on the the pressure and the stakes. I'm sure that most thought that an arrest would take place and things would de-escalate, but it didn't. In fact, the opposite happened and the foot on the throat momentum kept mm-hmm. driving the stakes up. So to your credit, the way that that scene followed with the police officer at the hospital, that really played so well. Thanks. We um, it, It's interesting. That scene, strangely, is in the novel, in the motel, as they're leaving, Blanche sort of describes what will happen, that I'll go to the police and I'll tell them this and this and this. I felt it was much better to see <laughs> to see it play out and have the cop come. So a lot of what he says is stuff Blanche had said in the motel in the novel. Um, but he, he it, you know, threatens to, the longer you guys stick around, the more the chances are that something's going to happen to the grandson. Greg Lawson is the actor who played the sheriff. And, you know, great character actor, had one scene, nailed it. Kevin was so, the, Kevin and Diane were so into him um, just because he was so good. 
in terms of authenticity, you were talking about the driving, you're talking about the, the lenses. You did something really, really crazy, though, Tom. Hmm. What, what was this burning the house down for real? What was that? What was that all about? Well, that was, uh, that was part of the deal. When we were talking to different people that would, or entities that might make the film, Focus Features and a couple other places, that was always my deal breaker, that we have to build a house to burn it down. And they agreed. And my argument was always that there's an emotional resonance and release to the house burning down. It's not simply revenge. I needed an emotional, there's an emotional component to watching that house burn, that if that house were digitally burning, you wouldn't feel anything. And that was the key. And people people understood it. And when we did burn the house down, I again, I, my position felt validated. You must have good negotiation skills, Tom, because particularly dealing with a studio, most yeah. studios would just say, no way it's got to be cgi that's that, that's the end of the story yeah. but you, you you hung in there and you you got what you wanted so yeah it, um, did, it, it was a it was it wasn't a short process <laughs> to, to get to that I can, I can believe it wasn't a short process but the yeah. payoff when i was in the cinema yeah when i was watching the house burn down i looked mm -hmm. at it and something was telling me this looks real. This does not look yeah. like CGI fire. This looks completely real, and particularly the way those planks came down as yeah, as yeah. it was uh, cascading onto itself. I thought that's definitely happened. He he, yeah. he has torched the house. Yeah, yeah. And the house was mm -hmm. such a great match for the the wee boys' house. I mean, it it just yeah. clicked. Good. You know, it's it's so funny how these things come about i had an idea of the wee boys house being this victorian sort of you wanted to feel like a, a beached ship in the middle of an ocean or a dry ocean bed that they're they live in the middle of nowhere but the the size of the house ended up being determined by the staircase inside the house which was determined by a stunt we needed to have happen which was that kevin drops the kid over a railing to somebody below. But it, it's interesting how these things determine themselves. We talked about COVID and the release of this film. I can't imagine how frustrating it's been for you caught up with the, the COVID, which is running right through the film's theatrical uh, release. A lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, <laughs> clearly uh, not only with your film, but with other films. Yeah. How have you managed to cope with all of that? It's disappointing to not be able to see, you know, be packed in a theater with people, but I, you know, I'm really grateful to Focus Features, which were they were determined to have a theatrical release no matter what. And I am strange. I'm grateful that we that they didn't elect to push off until next year. I'm afraid a movie of this scale might get lost next year um, when everything comes out. I am also grateful that it all I cared about was that it be available for people to stream here in the states. Well, you'll be pleased to know that the film in New Zealand has been playing, I think, for about two and a half weeks. If you want to see a thriller, there is no competition from what I have seen in the cinema, oh, so that's working really well. Uh, the genre is clearly a thriller which fringes, 
Well, this is how I would describe your film. You can tell me how you describe it, but mm. I, I think it's it's clearly a thriller which fringes with tones of a Western look that turns dark and mysteriously disturbing. How, how would you describe it? <laughs> I, li I like that description. Um, I have no idea, which is why I've heard it described as a neo-Western, which I don't mm. really know what that means, but there is a, it, there's sort of a Gothic Western, those pulpy Westerns from the 1950s. It sort of is a bit like that. So I, th I think it's a dramatic thriller in a Western setting dramatic thriller that's what it is tom yeah well tom it's been insightful and great to find out about you as a writer director and also a producer the very best of luck with the film let Thanks it so go much. and uh, don't give up on the dark thriller genre i think that you've kind of hit gold with this one and you've probably got another one in you <laughs> So I think it was very up. fun. It was very fun. And thank you so much for coming on Shoot It Now. Really appreciate it. Craig, thank you. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.